My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is the associate pastor at Christ Kirk in Moscow, Idaho, a fellow of theology at New St. Andrews College, and the author of The Case for the Christian Family. Please welcome the third guest of Reformation May, Pastor Jared Longshore. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. As I'm sure many of us recognize by now, the internet has been somewhat of a mixed blessing. It's great for making connections with like-minded people. That you're listening to me at all right now is proof of that. But what happens when we encounter people who aren't like-minded? Well, that's often a bit less great. So it seems to me that the internet is a 50-50 mix of connections and arguments, maybe a bit biased to one side or the other, depending on who you are, the day of the week, and the current headlines, which means we'll inevitably be brought into contact with ideas, philosophies, and worldviews we don't understand and perhaps don't like, even on a daily basis. This is the reality. Then what do we do with it? For most people, the answer seems to be, bash on each other with their opposing worldviews until one person gives in, rage quits, or says something to disgrace themselves, and then blocks the other person. Or you just run out of energy and time. This is how it seems to me most internet debates go. I'm not a fan. It's difficult and painful, and no one ends up winning, not least of which those people who might watch the discussion to learn a thing. I'd like to propose another way, more challenging, edifying, and beneficial to both parties and the audience. Here it is. Don't argue with someone online until you understand their opposing perspective at least as well as your own, if not better. For example, I can argue effectively against liberals and progressives because I used to be one. I understand their worldview because it used to be my own. The same is true for me and the New Age. I argue with them online because I understand their worldview often better than they do. That makes me effective in revealing the lie at the heart of it and inviting people to consider alternate perspectives. That's how I'm redeeming my journey through that darkness. So how is this relevant for Christians? One thing I've observed over the past few months is the deep divide in Reformed Christian circles over the issue of infant baptism called paedobaptism versus adult baptism following a profession of faith called credobaptism. At first, I thought this was just a casual disagreement over a tertiary issue, and that the two camps debate each other on it like adults play flag football and maybe there are times in which that's true. But the closer I looked, the more I see that there is a deep division here, with strong feelings and even real acrimony at times. For some, it's not casual, and what we might call sharp disagreements have arisen. The reasons why, it seems to me, are due to aspects of church history which I don't yet understand. However, I, as a new believer making Christian content, have to play the ball where it lies. I made a profession of faith as an adult, a moment which I treasure, and I attend a Reformed Baptist Church, Apologia, of which Dr. James White, a world-famous debater for credo-baptism, is an elder. 
We have a round of baptisms coming up next Sunday, in fact, that will almost certainly feature children as young as four or five. I have every reason in the world to simply say, credo baptism is where it's at. Deal with it. But men I admire greatly, including pastors Doug Wilson and C.R. Wiley, argue passionately in favor of infant baptism and are building communities based on it. Gabe Wrench, who lives in Moscow and is the co-host of CrossPolitik, did a debate at my church in favor of it the week after he was on my podcast. So there must be something there. And following my own advice, I cannot argue with anyone online or offline about it until I understand their perspective at least as well as my own. In doing that, however, I forgot to mention that there's a catch. You or I might get our minds changed. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Jared Longshore, and he's the associate pastor at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, as well as a fellow of theology at New St. Andrews College, and the author of the excellent new book, The Case for the Christian Family. And I owe him a debt of gratitude, not just for his inspiring content about parenting, theology, and Christian nationalism on YouTube, which is a regular part of my content consumption, not for his sense of humor and ability to turn a phrase either, but because his new book is the introduction to the heart of paedo-baptism that I was looking for and needed. And I do mean heart, because to me, being part of redemptive history is an emotional affair. It's a profoundly moving story, truly the greatest story ever told. How can the regenerated human heart not be touched by the reality of participating in a thousands-of-year-long tale much larger than ourselves. And at this moment in my life, as I break from generations of Spencer family traditions to form a new faith for my family, I'm also asking, how does that story relate to me, to my kids, to their kids, and to households, communities, churches, and the nations, both mine and others? The case for the Christian family helped me see that vision, to put the individual and collective cases together, and to understand the nature of the debate because it reflects Jared's own journey as well. Now look, I'm not here to argue for one perspective or another. That is not my place. I'm fumbling my way through the subject. All I can do is all I've ever done. Share the pieces I pick up on my way, tell you what I think of them honestly, and encourage those who, like me, enjoy asking questions to pick those pieces up and give them a try. For those reasons and many more, I recommend Jared's work and the case for the Christian family to become part of your faith journey as well. In our conversation, Jared and I discussed Christians and covenant thinking, the power of American revivalism, Baptist individualism and its origins, the corporate identity of the Christian, bringing up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and finally ice cream, nets and fishes, and circles of light. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. Three years of work on this show is paying off in a major way, praise God, and thank you for being a part of it. Please continue to leave five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, plus five-star ratings on Spotify, and share this episode so the Renaissance can reach more men and women. The Renaissance of Men podcast is proudly sponsored by Reformation Coffee. Pastor Brandon Lansdowne has been hand-roasting beans for 14 years, honing his craft for a moment like this. Because it's time for Christians and their churches to start sourcing their coffee from places other than woke corporations, and it's time for us to begin supporting Christian-owned businesses, creating godly prosperity for the kingdom. Since this is Reformation May, you can enjoy episode three of my five-part series, Will Reforms His Coffee, playing in the middle of this episode. I'm learning to make pour-over coffee, which is the subject of some of my favorite old-time hymns. And this week, I brewed my first cup. 
You can sip along with me by going to reformationcoffee.com and entering the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. We're also counting down to the second edition of the Renaissance of Men digital conference series coming up on Saturday, June 3rd, with a lineup of all-female speakers discipling women in biblical femininity and the virtues of the Proverbs 31 woman. Featuring Annalise from Feminine Not Feminist, Dear Sister, Soli Oli, Bernardine Bluntley, Martine DeLuna, Issa Ryan, and the one and only Allison Armstrong. Go to renofmen.com conference to get tickets and use the code renofmen for $5 off. And please welcome this week's guest on the podcast, a husband, father, pastor, theologian, and the author of The Case for the Christian Family, Dr. Jared Longshore. Jared, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Happy to be here. So uh, I want to just dive right in to your new book, The Case for the Christian Family. Uh, I picked this up about a month ago, and uh, I finished reading it, and it's an absolutely beautiful and very moving book. So I just wanted to thank you for it, and and, uh, just if we can, just start there. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. I guess I don't remember exactly when it released with Canon, but uh, it was a joy to write. Obviously, it made a big switch in, in my doctrine after pastoring for, I think, 15-ish years as a Reformed Baptist, um, switched over to Pado, and, and the thinking about the covenant had a lot to do with that. So a lot of that is baked into that work. Mm, so you're sort of articulating a little bit of your own of your own faith journey in that regard through the book? Yeah, it was one of my favorite lines that I'd read in Chesterton's Orthodoxy, where he said something like, you know, no man can charge me with trying to make a fool of him. I am the fool of this story, and I won't permit anyone to cast me down from my throne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, "Yeah, that, that's." Uh, I'm writing this book, um, just kind of constantly humbled by um, things I used to think, some of the things that switched, and uh, it was a it was a joy to write. Mm, I did watch your YouTube video about your move to to Moscow and and that change and that change as well. So it seems like it's been a year or two of, of some pretty big changes, actually. Yeah, yeah, we've been out here just over a year and a half, I think. Um, so I, I joked somewhere that the the state itself is mm-hmm. like flipped upside down. You know, it's like Florida; it's just kind of turned, right. kind of a metaphor for our lives. Well, it's, uh, what's actually kind of funny is I'm in Florida right now, unexpectedly at the Thank God for Bitcoin conference. So uh, we're just sitting down with Michael Foster as well. But um, so I didn't expect to be in Florida during this podcast, but but here I am. So I so being down in the the humid and rainy weather, I can understand it has been a bit of a change to move up there. Yes, yeah, boy, soak soak up the rays down there. It's a it's a nice state. Yeah, it's raining right now. But um, so let's so I want to start by talking about uh, the ice cream shop because that's sort of the metaphor that you weave throughout the entirety of the book to understand the different ways the covenant is understood. Now, you know, I'm a relatively new believer, so understanding covenant theology in this way has been an education for me, and I think that's um, your use of metaphor throughout the book is, is, is one of the most compelling things about it, really invited me into the arguments you were making. Yeah, the ice cream shop, you know. Ice cream is always compelling, so... That's right. Um, yeah, I... You know, I'd heard for a long time people talk about administrations. You know, one covenant, two administrations is the uh, Pado Baptist way to go. And, you know, when you hear that word, you think, well, like, what? Like, what are you talking about? You know, mm-hmm. it, it was common language at, at seminary and that kind of thing. But um, it it didn't dawn on me that uh, that administration language is not just talking about getting thing A to individual B. 
like I administer lotion to my daughter's knee. We, in the English language, we use that administer, I administered it. Um, but then we also talk about um, administrations like the Washington or the Jefferson administration. Mm-hmm. And when we talk that way, uh, we know we, we mean something different by the word. We mean an entity. Um, there, are, there are card-carrying members of the Jefferson administration. And then there are those who are not members of that particular administration. So my use of the ice cream shop is basically um, highlighting that thing that I mean, um, the Jefferson administration or to be in the ice cream shop. It's, um, it's taking the word covenant and helping people think of it as an actual, um, um, not only a bond between God and an individual, but a, a bond between God and a corporate people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am your God and you are my people. And of course, with Abraham, we see circumcision operating just that way. It wasn't just Abraham that was circumcised. It was Abraham and his sons. And uh, this is signifying that these indeed are members of the covenant. Um, so you find in the um, in the American context, particularly, you'll you'll hear in some reform circles, uh, probably a fairly a good amount of reform circles, that a lot of the American Presbyterians have lost their heritage. They they think uh, more baptistically about the covenant, and so you have. Um, some people speak of external and internal, and I think that's a fine way to speak. Uh, John Ball speaks that way. You're being an external member of the covenant or an internal member. But even then, I think people are confused about what that language, what does external and internal mean? And um, just saying, hey, this this is what a covenant is. You have the covenant sign, which means you're in. I heard recently, um, kind of a well-known um, I heard from a guy that was in seminary with a well-known Presbyterian minister who spoke of your children are in the shadow of the covenant. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh boy, like that's really, you're really trying to, you know, you're just in the shadow of it. Um, it you know, you just say, no, well, they're, they're in the covenant and that covenant has conditions. This is the language of John Ball, kind of a classic Westminsterian type of um, covenant theology. Uh, well, there's conditions, of course, you can walk out of that ice cream shop but you are genu- genuinely in that ice cream shop. And you must partake of the ice cream by faith. You must trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so there needs to be personal faith. There's to be active regeneration, all of that. But there is such a thing as this ice cream shop to say, this is just what you are. You are a Christian. You are in covenant with God. Um, tried to spell all of that out with an ice cream shop. And then, of course, the ice cream shop has to undergo a renovation. Uh, this is from the old covenant to the new covenant. I was talking to that Joel Webb in a while back, and I think he said something about it shut down for three days, which I thought was an interesting. He added to my metaphor by saying it shut down for three days. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't know if that works or not, but you understand there, there's an there's an old covenant ice cream shop that go undergoes a great renovation. Oh, I get it. That's great. Uh, the newness of the new covenant, um, and I think John Ball articulates like eight uh, aspects of the betterness of the new covenant saying they're substantially the same, but different in form. Uh, the, so there's a form form differential between the old and the new covenant, but they are both uh, for substance, the covenant of grace. Um, so I expressed that by saying this is a renovation of the ice cream shop, not an entirely new ice cream shop, but it, it has undergone significant renovation enhancements such that the new covenant, in which we find ourselves is far better than the old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the stand versus the shop, I think, made it really clear to me the difference kind of under, of understandings of what the experience of being a believer is. 
Now, again, I spent, I, I came from a Jewish family. I spent 20 years in the New Age world and came to faith in 2020, as many others have. And so I'm getting to observe these different ways of being from the outside, the different ways of experiencing you know, being Christian, of growing up in it, of finding your way to it, individual faith versus family covenantal thinking. And it's it's been in this book, your book really helped me understand the things that I had been that I had been seeing of what the Baptistic versus Presbyterian view is. Now I, I can't litigate that debate. I'm not at that stage in my journey, but to understand to understand these two different perspectives and and why they have such power to the people who find themselves in them, I suppose I, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, it is really fascinating. And America is such a, um, it's just such a Baptistic place. Mm. Just like individual rights and liberties is at the foundation of um, of our nation. And I'm uh, reading a fascinating book right now called God and the Atlantic, mm. um, especially with the Christian nationalism conversations going on. It's, it's, it's really interesting. This guy, I can't remember who the author is, but he basically collected like, conservative England and I think conservative Europe's take on the United States of America kind of primary source data from, I think the 19th century. <coughs> and they're all just talking about how, how this whole America is doomed because there is no established church over there. And it's a bunch of revivalistic like craziness. And, you know, we went and saw some of this, some of those Wesleyan revivals and it's just, you know, shameful what they're doing, you know, and yet there's still a part, like if you, I mean, I was, not only was I Baptist for a long time, but just being an American Christian, you're like, mm. you know, we want to go to those tent meetings. Like we want, we're like, no, there's something like, this is where the yeah. stuff is. Jonathan Edwards, you know, has taught us about religious affections and what is a genuine affection and what's not. There's just something so uh, Billy Graham about it that you just mm. love it. You know? Um, so I, I think the, often when you do the covenantal thing, it just, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't hit right away with American Christians who are basically all Baptistic in their instincts. You know, this, mm -hmm. this notion of a covenant that God has made with, with a whole people, um, that then actually has like earthly implications, the um, baptism meaning something, you know, I, I think another way <clears throat> I express this is like baptism itself. Like, you know, um, is it, is it really a sign from God to the party baptized? Right. And, um, and what makes that sign work? Mm -hmm. Um, what, what makes it stick? <clears throat> One man would say, look, um, when the baptism is administered, um, it's a, it's administered and it counts and it sticks. Mm -hmm. And and the other uh, person is going to say, well, um, it only sticks if um, if the person really meant it. If the person that was saying, "I I trust the Lord and follow Jesus," really meant it. If they were duping us, or if they were um, if they were confused something like that, you know, they could come back to us in six months and say, Hey, you know, I really wasn't saved the, the real deal. I, it wasn't a real deal. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do as a, you know, as a pastor in that situation? I mean, do you do it again? <laughs> do you, you say, Hey, get out of here, man. That's sick. You know, um, get out of here. It, 
it worked, you know, or, or do you mm. say no, because, because I was not being genuine, uh, it wasn't real. There's different worldviews that are going on there and how someone's going to deal with that particular circumstance. And this covenantal pedo view is, is moving, um, more to no, this is God. God acted. He did this. Same situation would be if a man and a woman just got married, right? They take their vows and you say, it's my privilege to present to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. Um, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Mm-hmm. But what if they're like halfway down the aisle, you know, recessing and, and the guy turns around and is like, hey, just kidding. You know, I didn't mean it. <laughs> right. What do you say to that guy? Like, are you not, are you not married? Um, or is it like, well, tough because you took a vow before God and you are bound. You, this is what you are. God, you, you have been joined together, made one. Um, of course, you need the issue of consummation in that. I don't want to get into all of marriage doctrine, right. but you would need consummation. But my point is um, the vow itself and, and God acting in the world is a different way of thinking about the world than this kind of expression and, and me having to be um, genuine in order for things to actually um, occur in the world. Yeah, that's really helpful because I hear that. So uh, when I was baptized, I, 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 the reason why I um, have liked the idea of credo baptism is that I had to make that promise. It was me consciously choosing something, making a vow, and that had meaning to me as as an adult, right? But I, I what I hear and what you're saying is that there's this. I've I've heard this theme through the debate, which is like, um, are you sincere? Some sort of inner, some sort of inner chosen transformation. Like there's got to be something about you, and that's the that touches on the hyper individualistic aspect that I think you're talking about. That I haven't quite understood what people are because the Baptistic tradition in America. It's a whole long conversation that I'm just showing up, showing up at this particular moment of that has a lot of energy. But what I haven't understood is this, um, this individualistic notion of you have to do something. I don't know if I'm expressing that quite the right way, but you captured it in what you just said right there. Am I, am I coming near it? Yeah, I think so. The, um, I mean, one way, to, um, one way to frame it would be Deuteronomy 29, 29. Uh, it is a, you know, it should, it could be a great life verse. It's uh, the secret things belong to God and the things revealed belong to us. Mm. And he's okay. Um, well, what does that mean? Well, there are secret things that belong to God that just haven't been revealed to us. Um, and, and, uh, many, many people would say very often, uh, the moment of your active regeneration the moment, the moment that you are born again by the Spirit of God, um, is one of those things. It's a secret. It's a secret thing, mm-hmm. um, and it belongs to God. And we have to live in the world of things that are revealed. What things have been revealed? Now, um, is it sometimes revealed? Sure, I'd, I'd grant that it's sometimes revealed. Somebody has a great moment, you know, the, a great moment behind the the corn house in the field where I knelt down and looked to the heavens and I knew, and, and my life changed from that day on. And you say, well, praise the Lord. That, that, um, that idea of conversion and, and it seems the new birth, um, in a sense, in, in, um, structured in such a way that we know exactly when it happened. 
is a hallmark of evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. So the evangelicals are just, um, that's a, that's a axiom of what it means to be an evangelical. We think that the world is made up of the converted and the unconverted. Um, and as you, uh, the more covenantal the conversation becomes, it's also moving, um, it's moving not away from that truth as a truth, but it's, it's kind of placing that uh, very often in the secret things belong to God and then saying, and what things are revealed that belong to us. And we would say with the covenant child, the thing that, re- the thing that is revealed is that God will be God to this child. Mm-hmm. God's, already, God's already covenanted it. God mm-hmm. said so to Abraham. He says so in Isaiah. He says so in Jeremiah. He says so in the book of Acts. He says so um, with the case of the Philippian jailer. You know, I mentioned this to you, believe in the Lord Jesus. I mentioned this in the book, um, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved and your house. Mm-hmm. You say, well, that's that when that's announced, it's a revealed thing. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your house. And it's living in the world of what has God revealed. Um, and uh, does that mean you don't need to test yourself to see if you're in the faith? Well, no, you should. This is, the Bible says to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is an orientation that's um, wary of navel gazing, like obsessive navel gazing about, am I really in? Am I really loved by God? And you say, look, God has said, this is what God has said. You need to trust what God has revealed. And that is what it, that's what it means to live by faith. Mm-hmm. You live by faith in what God has revealed, mm-hmm. not what, you know, you've conjured up in your heart, not in what you're convinced is true. You know, you've convinced yourself this is true, so I'll trust that much. No, you trust what God has said. You're looking to his word. This is what God has said. Um, and now you're living in the world by faith. Do you think that the Baptistic individualistic mindset lead is what leads to those people wondering if they're if they're in or not or saved or not versus versus being in a covenant kind of environment in a larger community of believers they might have more reassurance like if you believe it's all on you and it's your profession of faith and it's you and god it can be easy to doubt that that relationship in moments of tiredness stress you know struggle etc versus being in a covenantal community you have the reinforcement of the people around you to to reaffirm what you know to be true about yourself and mirror it back to you? Yeah, you know, yes. The short answer to that is yes. And um, there's all sorts of things I'd say about, you know, d- different people, different orientations and all that. But one thing- I don't want to start I'll, a war, by the way. Right, no. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good thing. The hatchet is buried. We're all in the, yeah. uh, w- w- what? well, as you, you've read my books, so, you know, we're all in the ice cream shop together. That's so right. I've, I said this recently, um, in a little post I did to a friend, Scott Aniel at G3 Ministries, I said, you know, that I said, we're, we're in the same house, just different rooms. And mm-hmm. um, of course, I'm talking in terms of the visible church um, at that point, which is, a, which is historically something that the Baptists haven't really affirmed. There have been, um, you know, you'll find Baptists that affirm it, but the language has changed to visible saints in the Second London Baptist Confession rather than visible church, which is found in the Westminster Confession. And then you going all the way back to the early 1600s. This is a bit of a sidetrack, but it's fun to go down this one. Sure. Um, um, in, the, in the early 1600s, there was a man named Henry Jacob. Um, 
And and he's famous, uh, his last name, Jacob, forms the Jacob Lathrop Jesse Church, the JLJ Church, three different men, Jacob uh, Lathrop Jesse, early 1600s. And it was, that was like the soil from which the Reformed Baptists sprang who were separatist Puritans. So they weren't Puritan. They weren't just the Puritans who wanted to purify the Church of England. They were they had to separate from the Church of England. And then the Reformed Baptists separated from the separatists. So they're like separatist times two. Wow. Because, um, and, and the impulse was, if we keep baptizing these infants, you know, we're polluting the church from within. So, and the whole point of being a separatist mm-hmm. Puritan is to have a pure church, a, what's called a regenerate church membership. Um. So at any rate, but tied into that often is kind of a denial of the visible church uh, for the sake of just particular churches. What we have is particular churches. Here's down there at Apologia, Christ Church up in Moscow, et cetera, et cetera. And we're all a part of the invisible church together. Mm-hmm. Okay, And so we're brothers and praise the Lord. We're in Christ and all of that's true. We're all shed by the blood. So you have this, you have this unity, but the unity is like an invisible church unity. Um, but not a visible church unity, not a kingdom of God on earth kind of unity, mm-hmm. um, which I think sometimes, honestly, just uh, breaks down the kind of um, institution building and collaboration and community life that we really need. And I think a lot of people in the American Baptist kind of world, be they reformed or whatever, are like longing for that. They're mm-hmm. longing for like the actual fellowship of the saints in the kingdom of God. Yeah. Um, which is the visible church, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I think that's supplemented by all of the ministries and all of the um, like networks. Like, you know, so, you, so you're popping up all these kind of artificial, artificial unities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to any of them, mm-hmm. but I, I think they're like, there's such, such a hunger for that kind of um, kingdom of God. So that goes all the way back to the 1600s with, Henry Jacob, denial of the visible church, and um, basically just uh, just saying the only thing that there is, that exists is the particular church, and it can be a strange deal to um, to say, okay, there's this visible church of God, there is a house of God that's being built up on earth, which is called the kingdom of God. Can you talk a little bit about what um, what your journey has been like? From, from discovering these things kind of firsthand, right? Coming from a more Baptistic point of view and then into a more, you know, covenantal, you know, Presbyterian kind of view. Like, what has that transition been like? We talked earlier about your move from Florida to Idaho and then, you know, sort of theological shifts and et cetera. What has that been like for you to read it, to discover this or rediscover it, I suppose? Yeah. Well, it's weird because, um, you know, there are certain presuppositions to, um, to this whole pedo baptism thing. Mm. Um, and it's very interesting to me to see how different people come. Like some people, they're just, they're new Christians and they look and they see a text and they think, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. My kids, my kids are with me in this thing. And so let's do it. Mm. And then others are like, no, I need to have like some wires rewired um, through the process. But I, I think all there's, there's definitely a, um, a cultural reality and that I've seen a lot of people posting recently, you know, don't change your doctrinal position because of a, because of a cultural, um, because of the breakdown of our culture. And, um, yes, granted, but you don't, you know, you don't just, you don't just like go, wow, things are really bad out there. I've watched Fox news. I'll become a Presbyterian. Don't right. do that. Um, <laughs> but you do start to, you know, you live in the world and you start to ask questions. 
Yes. Um, so I, I think one way this happens is this, I, this didn't happen explicitly in my case, but I can see it happening. So you deal with something like intersectionality, all of these victim identities, white, black, um, you know, male, female, gay, straight. Um, and you start to think through like, which one of these identities are real corporate identities and, and, and which one of these are false corporate identities. And, um, and then what is the, what is the, what is the corporate identity of the Christian? You say, okay, well, the saints are my people, the saints, the Christians. And then you go, okay. And who are they? Mm -hmm. Um, is the guy sitting at the table with you on Sunday morning, eating the Lord's supper? one that's with you or is it like no he's not with me if he's not regenerate if he's not actively regenerate Mm. that's the question what do you do with the what do you do with the baptized saint can you do you only have that clear fellowship and unity with with those who you are convinced are regenerate or do you just say hey you're a baptized christian and and we're in together you've been genuinely signed and sealed uh, we are in covenant together and then you then you hold him to the standard of repentance and faith if he's in sin because yeah. he is in covenant with you um so i think that's one example of how you're deal, dealing with something like intersectionality is at least going to cause uh, guys to think through what is our christian corporate identity and who is in and who is not in in Covenant has everything to do with that. Again, the the Pado Baptist structure is that the way that the old covenant was. Um, some people say a mixed covenant, meaning there were people in it who were genuine, and there were people in it who were not. There were people in it who were not trusting God and obeying God. Um, and then the Pados say that's the same way with the new covenant. There are faithful Christians in it, and then there are bad fish in it as well, um, who will be. And that will be sorted out, but you, but you acknowledge the net and you have both good and bad fish in it. Okay. Um, but the more Baptistic minded, uh, approach is to say, no, the only people that are in the net, the only people that are in, in the new covenant are regenerate. Mm-hmm. And then you have a bunch of people that are false professors. Um, you have these people that are, yeah, they're baptized. Yeah. They're eating the Lord's supper. Um, but they're not really in. Hey everyone, welcome to episode three of Will Reforms His Coffee, sponsored by Reformation Coffee. I'm updating my coffee experience from diner drip to pour over connoisseur, and I'm bringing you along for the ride. In episode one of this series, I discussed the supplies needed to brew a pour over cup. And in episode two, I talked about the process. This week, we're going from theory to practice as I take my first shot at actually doing it. Now, one thing I know about myself is that I'm a slow learner. It's not that I'm unable to learn things, it's just that I ask so many darn questions. The upside is that when I do finally learn how to do a thing, I get really good at it and can teach it. The downside is it's pretty painful for a while as I fumble over very basic stuff. Man, do I have stories about that. But hey, we all have weaknesses. So with that in mind, I've just brewed my first cups of pour over coffee. I got YouTube certified and followed the directions step by step. And drum roll, please. I have successfully made coffee flavored water. It was definitely brown 
and I can confirm that beans and hot water were involved, but I probably wouldn't pass that job interview to become a barista. After all that education, it's pretty humbling. Not like this is rocket surgery either, is it? However, I'm not going to quit. I have 200 filters and two weeks until my episode with Brandon Lansdowne to close out Reformation May. So hopefully by then, I'll be able to have an intelligent conversation with a master. And speaking of Brandon, he's the founder of my podcast sponsor, Reformation Coffee, that inspired this adventure. Brandon has been hand roasting beans for 14 years, and now in God's providence, he has the opportunity to model what passion, dedication, and craftsmanship can mean to Christian men looking for a way forward to create godly prosperity for their families and the kingdom. But most importantly, he wants you and your church to stop supporting woke corporations who work against traditional Christian values. And I want that too. So go to reformationcoffee.com and try one of Brandon's four signature roasts and use the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. Once again, go to reformationcoffee.com and use the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. I recommend the Guatemala Roast, which might be the best coffee I've ever tried. And I'm looking forward to getting better at making pour-over so I can confirm that's true. And check back next week for episode four, where I check in and let you know how things are going. Say a prayer for me. And now, back to the show. Well, I think the question in that case, thank you for that, because that actually helps answer another question for me, because, because I think the question of being regenerate in that case is you're comparing an individual with who you think they should be, right? Versus they would be comparing themselves with who they were, right? So you was like, I don't think you're actually regenerate. It was like, well, do you know who I was a year ago? Because if you knew who I was a year ago, you might think differently versus who you think I should be. And I think the, the notion of there, now that's not to say that there aren't bad fish in the net and there, there might be, but I think putting it on the individual to evaluate, you know, anything outside of like some really extreme cases, whether someone's truly regenerate or not, runs the risk of, of a form of judgment that individuals don't really have the right to make or ability to make, let's say. Yeah, well, that's the Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine thing going on. Yeah. And it, you do see two different orientations. And I, I don't think that there are, um, you know, it would be a question worth exploring to say, like, how bad is this problem in the American church? How many guys are walking around looking at other people being like, you're not regenerate. Right, right. You're not regenerate. And so I can hear someone saying, hey, this isn't a big problem. I do remember a funny story from history, from church history. I can't remember the man. I wonder if it was Charles Finney. It might be Charles Finney um, or someone like him that during the revivals that he would come to a town and he would shake your hand. And the thing was, he had this, you know, the claim was he had this ability to tell whether you were the real deal or not. Okay. And so if he shook your hand and he said, hey, brother, then you were in. And if he shook your hand and said, hey, friend. You were out. You were not. You were not a brother. You know, like he had the secret. He had the line he, to, to to tell. So, how bad is that problem? Well, <clears throat> I don't know of anybody that, uh, that I've never. I've not heard that there is a man that's doing that kind of thing. But it is more like a orientation mm-hmm. of, of of your. You know, when David says in Psalm sixteen, "As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight." Um. I'm commending a, a, an approach that says, I mean, this guy's a brother. This guy's he's baptized yes. in the triune name. This is what he is. Like, and and then you 
orient yourself to him along those lines. And you can say, <coughs> you know, do you understand you've been signed and sealed? Right? You understand God has signed you. So get out of that. Get out of that mess you're in. You can't do that stuff you're doing. Right? Um, rather mm. than going like, mm, look what you did. I don't know. You know? And yeah. we, we can do this with, with children, you know? Oh, man. I mean, you, you, know, you said you're a Christian, but you, know, you disobeyed your mother. And, you know, <laughs> you, can, you can do that kind of thing. Yeah. And then I think our hearts do that with our children is we're, you know, if you don't have the promise from God that you're trusting, then, you know, raise your children in the faith. Raise them in the faith. Well, you got to be trusting the Lord that, hey, God has said um, that his word and his spirit's not going to depart from these, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and our offspring with us, Isaiah. Um, and we're trusting the Lord for these for these things and operating accordingly. So there is something, um, it's a gracious disposition and it's not just folly. Now, if you don't believe, if you don't have that covenantal mindset, um, then what I'm saying could sound dangerous. It could sound um, wrong because you're going to give people hope that they shouldn't have, or you're going to, you're going to approach them in a way that you have no warrant. You have no warrant to approach them that way. And you might just be stirring them up to do more uh, stumbling along to the slaughter. And I would say my answer to that would be, well, um, no, because the thing I'm telling them to do is trust and obey God. Right. I'm, I'm not telling them not to obey I'm telling them, don't you know that you've been baptized? Don't you know that you've been signed by God? Don't you know that you've been sanctified by the blood of the covenant, according to Hebrews, right? And yes, there have been those who have fallen away from that, trampled underfoot the Son of God. And um, and heaven forbid that you would do such a thing. But I'm telling you something that has actually happened, right? Like, um, this is something that... Um, so anyways, that's a little bit of a... Um, uh, one, one other example would be, you know, people, you know, they'll say like, I don't know if he's a Christian. I don't know if she's a Christian. And you find like that was a common thing for people to say. And mm-hmm. I remember saying to someone once, um, you know, don't, do you know that there's actually um, authorities that Christ has established on earth to make those decisions? And if you're not a minister, then that's not you. Like that hasn't mm-hmm. been like, there is this, um, baptism keys of the kingdom right yeah. and it's like when you do when you lose that kind of covenantal idea then every man for himself mm-hmm. i think this is what i think this is what um the book god in the atlantic was getting at they were saying oh boy it's just wild um it's just fractured into a thousand pieces and it's like every man becomes his own his own pastor and he, he feels like he can pronounce you know and it's a humbling thing to go, okay, I see how that is. Like there are actually, in the same way there are judicial authorities that actually have authority to render down these kinds of decisions. There's ecclesiastical authorities that do that. And then you guys say, well, I, I might be one or I might not be one. If I'm not one, then there's, um, that's something to think about as you're going about wondering who's, who's in and who's out. Yeah, this is something that I have a lot of Roman Catholic friends, and this is the one of the themes that they consistently hit on. It's like, oh, well, you know, after the Protestant Reformation, all you guys can just take the Bible and interpret it the way that you ever want, and the whole thing is just one big mess of 
tens of thousands of denominations. And it's like, okay, first of all, it's not true, but I understand what's being said there. The idea that, you know, short of some, some defining ecclesiastical authority to determine a, a broad set of things, then it's every man for himself. When in fact, I think to, to tie it into the, to the, um, the Christian nationalism debate just a little bit, you know, we're looking for a community building spirit to come together in this age of dissolution. Like so many things are falling apart. How are we going to begin coming together as Christians and, and start assembling the pieces of the puzzle? What sort of authority are we going to have ourselves be part of? And so um, I see the Baptistic mindset as you're articulated and, and as some of my own thoughts, it's like, okay, this, this, um, this every man for himself kind of mindset, like how do we move beyond that into a, a, a space of collaboration, let's say? Yeah, I do think covenant is the answer. <coughs> and on the Roman yeah. Catholic thing, it might be a funny place to quote G.K. Chesterton, but I would quote Chesterton <laughs> in response yeah. to the Roman Catholics of saying, look, we have order, we, you know, we have a pope, we have this. And um, mm-hmm. I, uh, their point has, um, has play for a very certain type of kind of radical, anabaptistic, revivalistic American evangelicalism, but it doesn't have play um, to a reformed understanding yes. that. Um, that the spirit is working this out through his church. Um, in, or, in orthodoxy, Chesterton's got a line somewhere about, um, he basically paints orthodoxy as this picture of this kind of um, kind of bent and twisted and kind of lopsided. Um, I don't know if it's like a bicycle or a machine. It's not wheels, I think, or something, but it's like mm. speeding down the high, it's speeding down the road and it's staying on the road, but it's kind of like, it's wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, that's a perfect example of how, um, how the word of God works. And it's not a, it's not a stifling authoritarianism that says, right. look, we have order, like you're going to get in the Roman Catholic church and look at all of the perversions that you get there. Mm-hmm. Um, the Protestant reformation was just right to say, look, the word of God is the ultimate authority. And when it is, does that mean the manifestation of uh, say orthodoxy or the kingdom of God on earth is a little unruly? Oh yeah, it is. And that's just how we like it. That's, mm-hmm. this is where the, this is where, um, this is where the American, um, Christianity that I've been talking about is, has something that's just right. Um, there's basically a way, there's a way to, uh, avoid say, um, second great awakening kind of Charles Finney crazy time, um, without thinking, well, I'll go back to the authority of Rome and this, um, that's, that's what I really need. Um, no, uh, but you do need a covenant reformed understanding that's that's shaping the way that you're thinking about um, the word of God, the visible church, family, on and on. Mm-hmm. This is this reminds me of your circle of light image, which was which really landed for me as as understanding you know the circle of light that the believer is within. And then all these circles of light kind of coming together to form, this was the image in my own mind that formed like, oh, wow, here's a vision of how we can begin assembling something larger than ourselves in this time of, of great upheaval. And so I don't know if you, if you would be willing to speak about that circle of light a little bit, because um, without spoiling the book, because I'd like people to go and pick up the book, but it was one of the things that I, that I walked away with. Yeah. And this was from Gerhardus Voss. Um, Voss is great. He's got a He's got a, um, a section I would encourage your folks to to check out. I think it's called the Covenant in the Reformed Tradition, or, or something very close to that. And that that's a particular um, 
that's a particular section of another book, and I can't remember the name of the book, but he he goes to town on covenant in that book. He talks. He's got another uh, work on the kingdom of God, but he speaks of the covenant as this circle of light that illuminates everything, and um, he ties us into the covenant as a mother idea, mm-hmm. right? That you are. We talk about covenant children that are nurtured in the covenant, um, and um, tied to this idea would be like your justification. Let's think about justification. If I approach justification without, um, without covenant, then you got, you know, here's a guy, here's Jack. Jack's not justified. Um, and at some point in time he's justified, Mm -hmm. right? And then he lives the rest of his life justified. That's, that's a good, nothing wrong with that. Like that's a fine way to talk. Um, and, um, we can add the sovereignty of God to that and all that kind of stuff. But covenant thinking is going to um, beef up the um, the truth that, well, Jack's justification is in Christ, okay, um, in Christ's redemption. And when Jack comes to faith, um, that that faith has appropriated that justification to Jack. Mm-hmm. So he is now, now he is justified and he wasn't justified before. Jack wasn't justified before, but his justification was in Christ. And therefore, um, Mm -hmm. in in that sense, justification preceded that moment of Jack's appropriation of justification by faith. Um, That's an important, that's an important idea. All of that, all of your salvation is, is in and through covenant. Um, And then that becomes a way that you actually this is what it meant by um, covenant nurture. And I, I've situated education in that same framework that Voss mm-hmm. goes after there is if you're going to, you're going to educate children in the covenant, um, then it has to be done from within covenant. It can't be done um, like, well, you're an outsider. And this is where some of the debate over like what can be named Christian and what can't be, can you name a school Christian, right? Well, you have a, you have a classical Christian school. Um, but the issue is like, what are you going to do with the fourth graders? You know, are you viewing them as Christian? Are you viewing, are you teaching them as a Christian to another Christian? Are you teaching them from within that covenant? Um, or are you teaching them as a Christian who, you know, I'm going to, de- what I'm delivering to you um, will be fine if you're in or if you're out. Mm-hmm. Like I can teach it to you just the same, whether you're in or whether you're out. And mm-hmm. so I don't worry about that. I don't, I don't make that distinguish. I, I don't distinguish yet because you're only in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. So I'm just teaching you things that are just going to help you. Um, and I'm kind of, I've moved the Christianity out uh, away from it. I'm teaching you uh, biblically faithful things and all of that, but uh, the actual teaching and the nurturing, um, is that being done from, from a Christian to a non-Christian from a Christian, to someone who's outside or is it, no, we're in covenant together. We're trusting God. This is God's truth. Isn't it good? Where I'm teaching you to love the truth by faith, mm-hmm. like, to know it. Yes, I know my my multiplication tables. Um, and I'm actually learning to love them as hard as that is, right? I'm learning <laughs> right. to I'm learning I'm learning to love them because they're gods, because all all of this is all of this is my father's. And I love my father and have been reconciled to him by Christ's blood. And all of the tr- all of the the nurture and the education is coming um, in that fashion. Yeah, that's the like the. Uh, by the way, as you say that, 
my brain is going to be getting completely rewired about the whole notion of how to approach education. Because I have to start thinking about now how to raise my children in the Christian faith. How am I going to do that having not been raised in the Christian faith? So I have to learn how to do this and how to think about these things pretty quickly. And so is this, is this uh, in the book, you talk about the, the C.S. Lewis, I guess, allegory about, about the beam of light, you know, coming, like looking down the beam of light or looking at the beam of light. Is this, is this sort of along the lines of what you're talking about? Yeah, I'll, I'll speak to this one and then may need to bug out of here. But this sure, line, yeah. Um, yeah, so C.S. Lewis in his, it's, I think it's called Meditations in a Tool Shed, um, speaks of the, the light he once saw um, streaming in through the top, through a cranny in the top of the door mm-hmm. into a dark tool shed. So you, you can imagine that it's a sunny day outside, but he's in the tool shed. It's all closed off. So there's this beam of light, dust particles floating in it and all of that. And he's looking at the beam. And then he mentioned how different his sight was when he looked along the beam, when he set his eye and looked out, out of the cranny, he could see the sun and um, he could see trees and all that stuff. And he, he was um, simply talking about the difference. Uh, the, the, both of these are good, good ways of knowing, but they're different ways of knowing. And I'm basically using his structure at that point. So I'm not, I'm not claiming to say this is what Lewis is saying, but I'm taking that paradigm that he set up and I'm comparing it um, to the way one person, say, say one child who's being taught that he's not in covenant with God, right? Because he's not, he doesn't have the covenant sign. Mm-hmm. And he, the Lord's Supper comes by. He doesn't have the Lord's Supper, so he doesn't. I don't have the. I don't have the signs of this covenant. I'm clearly looking at the beam, mm-hmm. right? I'm looking at it. I'm, I'm watching it happen. Right. And um, that child can learn many things. You know, I get taken to church, and I hear the word, and you know, and once I, once I'm in, then I'll start to worship. Mm-hmm. Right. But I'm not yet. I'm looking at it, I'm looking at the beam. Um, where the covenant nurture idea is, no, you're in. You are in the visible church. Uh, you are one of God's people. He is your God. You are his people. And we're teaching you and training you to look along the beam from the very beginning, which is to live by faith. Hmm. We're teaching you to live by faith uh, or to say, Ephesians 6, 1, children obey your parents in the Lord. Like in the Lord means you're doing it in the Lord. And the job of parents is to, train up their children to do that, to, to actually, um, you know, um, raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That would be the looking along the beam idea. Like you're in, you're in the Lord. And now we're going to raise you with that kind of nurture, not just looking at it, um, but actually looking along, along the beam. May I ask one more quick question? Yeah. So for the parents listening, um, your YouTube videos, you talk about parenting quite a bit and I recommend I recommend them very highly. So for the parents listening that are learning to teach their kids that have grown up looking at the beam and they're looking to teach their kids to look along the beam as you're saying from your own experience walking through this transition can you offer the parents listening a piece of advice for how they can begin making that transition as you have? Yeah. Well, okay, there's a catechism question. It's actually found in both the Baptist Catechism and it's found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, um, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Now imagine yourself, father, mother, there you are sitting around a table with five kids from the ages 13 down to the age of one. Um, and, and the catechism question is, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? The answer is, Christ executes the office of a priest in him once offering up himself 
a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. What I would tell those parents is um, if your little four-year-old looks and says, Daddy, is that true? Is, um, is Christ, does Christ intercede for us, like all of us around the table, like even the one-year-old? That you get into your bloodstream that the answer is yes, son. He intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. Um, you are loved by God. You are children of God. And we will teach you. We will train you. Discipline will not be punishment. And it will not just be a minute, a moment for you to come to Jesus and realize that you're a sinner and that you need to be justified. No, it's not. It's not. It's not just that kind of thing. It's a covenant nurture. It's a covenant training. You are in. You are on team. You are loved by God, and God is faithful to His promises. He will help you. And yes, Christ intercedes for us. I think if you start there of how you're thinking about your children, um, and know that if somebody says, "Well, then you're going to be guilty of presumption. You're going to presume, and you won't." Well, that has happened before, right? We're sons of Abraham. God says God can raise uh, sons of Abraham from these stones. You're actually children of the devil. You think you're sons of Abraham, but you're children of the devil. So covenantal presumption is the thing. And I don't want anyone to go there. Uh, this is important. You're trusting God and raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. To think that God's going to bless your children apart from faith and obedience is crazy time. It's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's a deadly error. But he will bless them and has promised to bless them um, through faith and obedience. So think of your children that way and raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Praise God. Thank you for that. Thank you. I, I, <laughs> it clicked. <laughs> and so, yeah, so, um, and, and definitely everyone pick up, uh, pick up the case for Christian nationalism for much more, for much more of this conversation. Um, thank you so much for your time. Is there, is there any place you'd like to send men and women to find out more about you and what you do? Um, jaredrlongshore.com so there's an R in there jaredrlongshore.com is where I write um, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook uh, publish a couple of books through Canon Press so you can go to all those sources thank you so much Jared, I really appreciate it alright, God bless episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.